Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun, or under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for us to experience not just the immediate things that are going on in this text, but what is going on in this section of Exodus, this wilderness experience, which is exactly in what naturally falls, the salvation, the passing through the waters, the moving into the life with you. And a lot of times we find ourselves uh, disillusioned with the wilderness, but Lord, I pray that we might find ourselves invited to it today, find it to be a place where you do your best work and is a time that is precious to our souls. Because Lord, it is our story. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to see what you have for us and to hear what you have for us. I pray that your spirit would do that. And I pray that your son's authority would accomplish that. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We are transitioned, or we have transitioned, in the book of Exodus. If you've been tracking along with us in the book of Exodus, the first 15 chapters were all about this narrative of God coming to his people and freeing them from the slavery of Egypt, taking them an an exodus out of Egypt and into the promised land. But before we do that, and before even we get to the meeting at Mount Sinai where Moses goes up and receives the presence of God and the law and all things from God, there is this transitional period of walking through the wilderness. And I want to focus on that as I just prayed because Exodus is our story. And I know there's a really cliche and cloying way to say that, and I don't want to say it that way. I want to actually bring out the light that this is very much so we read from the book of Exodus, not just because this is a description of who God is and what his people is like, but the Exodus story is really the story of every single person who comes to know Jesus, walk by faith in Jesus, and be sanctified into the image of Jesus. Because just like in the Exodus, we come into an awareness of this life, of some beautiful memory in the past that we have never experienced. It's interesting if you think of the world that way, like, for all of our vision of this perfect future, for all of our vision of what we can do, of what we can accomplish, there's this sense of, man, if we just do this, if we just conform tech the right way, if we just put all the pieces of government and polity in the right place, there will be a sense of unity and perfection. But the funny thing is, is like, no matter how many times we fail that, we continue to strive for it. And why? I would posit it to you that it's because we have a memory of that that we can't shake from our souls. That we come into this world with a sense of the Eden moment. A time where all things were as they should and God was with us. And we long for that. But yet we don't come to ourselves. It is a a feeling, a perception, a memory of that. But where we come to ourselves is a people in slavery. And we have a slavery, of course, of sin. And not only sin, but death. And not only death, but the devil. And we've talked already at length about the sense of, like, come on, it's 2019. Do we actually believe in, like, a devil, like, pitchforks and, and like, red, you know, forked tongue people walking around, or person walking around? I believe, actually, the devil is much more sophisticated than that. We talked about that at length earlier in the series. 
But you have to admit there's something sophisticated about evil that you solve the problem and it pops up in a very different way. In fact, sometimes the solution of the problem also comes with just the twistedness of human hearts. I mean, for all of the techno-utopians, the people that believe if we can just, as I said, get tech devices to do all the work, to make things affordable, to provide everything, for everything that we, every advancement we make in tech, there's some person that's just getting billions off of it, no, no matter the cost. I heard an interview this week with uh, a woman who's really covered the tech uh, world ever since the internet like, became a public thing in the 90s. And she said, man, I have a huge problem with so many of the ways that Google and Facebook and all these people are utilizing getting information about us and then creating a platform where they know people can abuse it. They couldn't know. They, I mean, there was not a, like, an unawareness that somebody could murder hundreds of people and put it on a live event for the world to watch. But they allowed that to happen. Why? Because it made more money. And so then they kind of like put it back off. Well, the community needs to like figure out how to use this responsibly. She said, no, you get paid the billions of dollars. You need to limit your own wealth for the sake of what's good, right, and true. That's the problem with the tech utopia. We arrange tech in a perfect way, but greed, idolatry, lust, envy, hate still exists with the utilizers of all that tech. And so... We sit here just trying to find ourselves in a slavery. And we talk about sin as slavery here because it's actually a really good way. I mean, there's the whole slavery in the Exodus where Pharaoh, this wicked taskmaster, is over the, Egypt, or over the Israelites. And just like that, we find sin over us, where sin itself is dehumanizing. There's this lie about sin that says, hey, if you come this way, you'll find life. But all of us who've experienced sin in any way, shape, or form knows that it promises life and delivers dehumanization, it delivers death, it delivers boredom, which is one of the most interesting lies about sin, is that it's exciting. But if you really press into like sin, addiction, it's not like this crazy excitement, all the things that you picture when it comes to the movies. It's being alone and being addicted and having... It can increasingly diminish in return on enjoyment, but yet no other way to nowhere else to go. It forms bondages. And like I already mentioned, it's not just sin itself, it's a wicked taskmaster. One who thinks he is God, wants to pretend he is. He lies to us, he rules over us harshly so that we live in fear, and then he destroys us slowly so that we go along with it just like cattle going on to our own slaughter. And then there's a cry in that that comes up to God in the Israelite story in Exodus and in our story where God comes and hears us and actually enters into the story. And he comes and says, I will save my people. And he does. He delivers us from sin, from death, and he steps into reality. And through the death of a sacrificial spotless lamb, which is the Passover and the Exodus, and which is Jesus on the cross in our story. And then he takes us and plunges us into the depths, the Red Sea in Exodus, or baptism in our story, and we arise out of that to follow him. And in all of that, we come to have this moment where we step out of the Red Sea and we're free from slavery 
And it's like the woohoo moment, like, you know, the Red Sea moment that we read a couple years ago, or a couple weeks ago, or even, I guess, a couple months ago. It's pre our, our scripture series. It's like the moment where Egypt, the taskmasters, follow Israel into the Red Sea. It covers them, wipes them out. And there's a sense where, like, okay, like, this is the credits roll. This is the happily ever after. This is now Israel rides off into the sunset. This is Whitney Houston singing, if you just believe miracles can happen. And that's great. That's where the credits roll. And that's where we love to end the movies. In fact, that's where we love to end all our stories, at that high point. The only problem is, is that's not even, like, halfway through the book of Exodus. There's plenty of more book to go. In fact, there's more post-Red Sea than there is pre-Red Sea. It's because like that moment where the Israelites all of a sudden cheer, high-fiving, yes, we're free now from our slavery, we're free now to follow our God, they turn around from the Red Sea and they see a wilderness. And not just a wilderness that God says, like, hey, I'll, we'll go around this, we'll take like, the high road. But he says, no, I'm, I'm leading you into this. Because there is a natural wilderness experience to following after God that's particularly that follows salvation. It is a moment of, yeah, I've stepped in to follow God in a new community. I've stepped out of sin. I've become aware that there's something more to this world than just the mundane of work and Netflix and all that I see. And not that those are bad things, but they're just not enough. And there's something more to this life. And then I want to pursue after and follow a God who is the creator of the world, in fact, the one who comes and is love and then fills us with the ability to become love in this world and bring his kingdom. But as we do that, the first thing that we find ourselves is kind of just like moving through the pain of removing sin out of our lives, the big obvious sins, the porn addictions, the addictions to other substances, the obvious anger seething out of us that causes us to just spew bitterness onto our spouse, our roommate, our friends, our coworkers. But then it also starts to get at the root of what's underneath all those sins. Why do I spew bitterness all over my coworkers? Why, when I get stressed in traffic and running late, or it's a really busy time of life, do I come home with just a sense of don't talk to me or I'm out ready to explode because somebody's demanding just a little bit more and I'm physically exhausted. I'm mentally exhausted. Why are there wounds that I can't quite yet identify but yet are still just exploding or causing me to run to gluttony or all means of escape? And see, the wilderness is God's chosen method to bring a lot of these out. Tayshon started this wilderness story last week with you, and you get Israel, or you get them going into the wilderness, and immediately, all of a sudden, there starts this grumbling. Where's the water? Where's the food? And then in 17, again, where's the water all over, and now in this situation? And now we're being attacked. There's a sense of our safety being in jeopardy. And you hear a constant grumbling and quarreling from Israel. Because again, it's drawing up all of that, whatever's down deep within us. God actually wants to address and deal with. And so some of you are here, and you've had that salvation moment. You've had the moment where like, man, I trust Jesus. He's forgiven me for my sins. He's given me all his righteousness. I now stand 
fully, freely, as a beloved son or daughter of the king. But I still wrestle with all this stuff. I'm still marked by anxiety. I still have a long way to go to achieve what Jesus calls life and life to the full. And let me just suggest to you that you've had the Red Sea moment and then you turned around and you found the wilderness moment. And that's not you being uniquely broken. That's actually God being gentle and calm and loving to draw you there. There's this really consistent theme of the wilderness and God drawing people to it all throughout Scripture. Abram or Abraham, the father of Israel, gets drawn, or the father of all God's people, gets drawn out into the wilderness to meet with God. You see Jacob, who actually is Israel, he is the one who, like, his sons are the tribes of Israel, gets drawn out into the wilderness and has this vision of angels ascending and descending. You get, of course, the Exodus, and they're drawn out into the wilderness in Mount Sinai to meet with God. You get Hosea, a prophet who God says, hey, go marry a prostitute, and that prostitute is going to continue to sell herself and cheat on you, and as she does, I'll draw her out into the wilderness and speak sweetly to her and woo her back to me, just like I'll do for Israel. You have Jesus who shows up, and like every single time, he just keeps going out into the wilderness. He goes out in the wilderness to get baptized. He goes out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He goes out in the wilderness to teach most of his major teaching. There's this regular theme Uh, It gets picked up in Isaiah. Isaiah 41, it says this, I will open the rivers and the bare heights and the fountains in the midst of the valley. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry lands a spring of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar of the acacia and the myrtle and the olives. I will set the desert of the cypress, the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. It's like God is saying, hey, I want to take you to the wilderness because it is where the place of death and destruction and chaos reigns is where I can actually work on you so that you might actually find life. And so I want to draw out for us this morning, just a few things from this story and from the stories around it in this wilderness narrative. And uh, as I do, I hope it's encouragement to us who find ourselves there right now. So the first one, Exodus 17, 8 through 11, let's read it again. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. And while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, uh, whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. Here's the first thing I want you to see about God's interaction with Israel out in the wilderness. Is that in the wilderness... We partner with God to move forward into the image of Jesus. And I say that, like, just looking at the the bit of the story. You get Amalek, 
who, you're like, who's Amalek? Well, if you read Genesis, and all these books were meant to flow together, Amalek is the descendant of Esau. And Esau is the brother, the twin brother of Jacob, who becomes the father of Israel. And these two guys are pretty much at war their whole lives. And now, even generations later, their relatives are still warring with each other. The uh, Amalekites were this people that were the people of Amalek. And as much as we know about them, they basically were just nomadic people who wandered the wilderness and took advantage of tired people wandering in the wilderness. Because again, wilderness is like the dark alley where you don't go. And they would just hang out and wait for people to get tired and have resources and take their resources. They're basically wilderness pirates. This is how they live. And they had real pirates in the Bible, and here they are. And so they have this group of people that now is coming upon Israel in the wilderness when they're weak, when they're tired, to take of their resources. And it seems that they are stronger. Unless this active hand of God is, is working, they are overcoming Israel. But I want you to notice what Moses does first. As he says, hey Joshua, and Joshua is going to be the next God's people who shows up in the next book, well, a book that took come later, not the next book, but Joshua. And this is his first moment where you hear of him. And he says, hey, Joshua, go gather up a group of our best men and go and fight. And that's interesting because the last time that they were, had their backs against the wall, when Egypt was closing in against them, against the Red Sea, they didn't have the now let's go and fight moment. They had the Toy Story 3, and not Toy Story 4, the unnecessary extra sequel to that whole franchise. I'm very conflicted about it. But Toy Story 3, the true conclusion of the story, uh, you know, they have the moment where, like, they're all going towards the incinerator and all the toys just... Oh, by the way, spoiler. Uh, you know, they, uh, they're going towards the incinerator and all the toys just realize we're dead, so they just grab hands and, like, we'll go down together. I mean, that's the moment that it, Israel has by the Red Sea. We're up against the Red Sea. Here comes Egypt. At least we'll go... Actually, they remember, like, screaming and complaining and, and yelling obscenities. But regardless, they have that moment where they're like, we don't have anything to do but just die. And Moses says, no, stand firm. You'll see your God today. And he raises his staff and through the sea parts the way for them to move forward. Not only the way for them to move forward, but the way for their oppressors to finally and fully be destroyed. And so you have that moment where God just provided for them. And then you have the next moment where then they're out grumbling about, hey, there's, there's no water here. And God says, hey, I want you to take a log, throw it into this bitter water, and it will become clean and good for you to drink. So already we've moved a little bit of a progression from they just stand and wait and watch and see God save them on their behalf to now, hey, I'm going to make the water for you, but I want you to participate in it. Toss the log in. And then the next thing comes manna. Hey, I'm going to provide for you bread that's just going to appear in the morning. But I'm not just going to like drop it into your like onto your tables as a set plate. Go and gather it. I want you to progressively participate a little bit more with me now. I'm putting it out a little bit more for you to do. And then of course, then there comes the next moment they're out of water. This time there's not bitter water to be tossed a log into, so they start complaining again. Well, now there's no water. It's not we have bitter water. We just have no water altogether. And God says to Moses, hey, go take your staff and go hike over this rock, and when you get that rock, I'm going to have you strike it, and water's going to come out of it. Again, it's now going and taking a staff. It's not just collecting right outside their doors. It's going across, finding water. And now we have in this moment where they are being taken uh, or attempted to be taken captive again, and it's not just the moment where they'd be like, okay, well, let's just wait for the Red Sea moment, but they actually go and assemble and they fight. There's a progressive nature to them 
partnering with God in the wilderness. And that's important because it's important for us to realize there is a progressive nature of you continually partnering with God for your increasing growth in Christ-likeness. And we've got to admit that in our tradition, that, that thinking makes us nervous. Because we come from a, a rich tradition in what I think is a beautiful movement called the gospel-centered movement. And the gospel-centered movement, I think, is good, right, and true. And that it says, hey, you don't do anything to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. You don't come clean yourself, present yourself to God, and he says, now you're a son. No, you're just sitting there back against the wall to sin, death, and slavery, and he just parts away for you by nothing that you've done. There's nothing you do to add to the cross and the life and resume of Jesus to make yourself now more accepted before God. And in that same vein, it is by God's grace that he empowers you to grow and walk forward and turn into a deeper progression into Christ-likeness. But sometimes what that becomes, and a lot of us get in this frustrated point of just like, okay, does that just mean like, okay, I hold on to my salvation, I remember my salvation, and just like sit there until I die and wait for heaven to come upon me? But rather, no, God's going to present, hey, I, I want you to continue to grow. That I love and I find you just as you are, but I love you too much to let you stay where you are. And I'm going to empower you with the Spirit to grow, but in this really weird place of tension... I'm also going to ask you to play a significant role in partnering with me. And so there is a call to, yes, be empowered by God. I mean, this, this fight that we have is completely empowered by God. I mean, that's the whole thing with Moses going up with his staff on the mountain and holding it up. And people are like, what's going on there? Like, is that prayer? And it could be. There's times where, like, we know that when the Jews would pray, they would regularly hold up their hands up to God. There wasn't necessarily this folding of hands and sitting and bowing heads, but it was rather a holding hands up to God when they prayed. And so people say, well, obviously this is Moses praying when he puts his hands down and ceases praying. They're no longer winning. When he puts his hands up, they start praying. They start winning again. Obviously this must be prayer. Maybe there's really not enough evidence to say that that's true. Here's what we do know for sure, though. It's very much so centered around that staff. Because what has that staff been in the book of Exodus? When Moses is out in the wilderness by the burning bush, God says to him, hey, throw it on your staff, it becomes a stake, because I want to show you that this power is with you, that I am with you. And then when he comes to the Israelites, he shows them the staff, and it turn, becomes a snake. And when he goes to Pharaoh, they throw down a snap, and it becomes a snake, or maybe even something much bigger than that, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, like this almost sea monster creature thing. But regardless of that, he then goes the next day to Pharaoh, and he sticks his staff in the Nile, and it becomes blood, and he laps his staff on the ground, and the dust becomes gnats. There's this regular sense, and then, of course, in the Red Sea, he holds up his staff, and the sea parts. And so there's this regular thing, or this regular repetition of God pointing out, hey, this staff represents my power and my presence in you, and so you can strike a rock, and I'm going to give you water from something that has no business producing water. And then when you go up to this mountain, you realize, hey, you're going to go up on the hill, you're going to raise your staff, and that's my power empowering you to do what you could not do. And at the same time, they gather people and they start fighting. Sometimes we can be more gospel-centered than the Bible is. Because the 
Bible has this concept of, of striving and working out and moving into your salvation. You're not working to earn your salvation, but now that you are saved and empowered, you do work in your salvation. And this is always the big tension. It's like, okay, if I'm working for my salvation, I'm earning it. No. Well, then I'm not working because then he's just giving it to me. Well, not exactly. Again, you get the same tension going on in Philippians 2, 12, 13. It says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you hear the partnership in that? Hey, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Like, move forward with a reverence, with an awe, with a holiness, with a sense 